You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hey everybody and good morning and welcome. Thrilled to be with you all today online in the room. What's up, 11 o'clock? You are here and I'm so honored and privileged to be with you here today. Hey, here's my question for you this morning as we get going. What's outside your door? What's outside your door? What's on the other side of what stands between you and someone else? I think this is a really important, to, important question to ask right now because over the course of about a week, all three of these three tragedies transpired. It's likely you've heard about at least one of these. First, a 16-year-old young man in Missouri named Ralph Yarl was on his way to pick up his siblings. Uh, but the teenager went to the wrong house and he rang the doorbell of the house and was shot twice by an 84-year-old homeowner. Thankfully, he is recovering but still, as one criminal justice professor put it, he said, I, don't just, I just don't see any justification for it. I'm just starting to question, have people, here's the word, lost their minds? A few days later, right here in the Austin area in Round Rock, a high school cheerleader named Peyton Washington opened the door and got in the wrong car by mistake at an HEB. And when she realized what had happened, she got out of the car, went and got back in her own car. But the 25-year-old man in the first car followed her to her real car, pulled out a gun, said nothing, and started shooting into the car, injuring her critically. In the middle of all of this, the same thing happened to 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis in upstate New York. She and some friends drove up the wrong driveway by mistake, looking for the correct address, never got out of the car, and as they turned around and drove away, the homeowner pulled out a gun, fired into the vehicle, killing her. County Sheriff said about the incident, quote, there was clearly no threat from anyone in the vehicle. There was no reason for the shooter to feel threatened. And then the sheriff concluded this way about the whole thing. He said, it's easy to get lost. Lost. It's easy to get lost. And I think he was more right than he even knew because that statement is not just true about places. It's true about people. It's not just true about roads. It's true about our relationships. And those three don't even include what just happened this past weekend in Cleveland, Texas, outside Houston, where a man's neighbors knocked on his door and asked him to stop shooting his assault rifle in his yard so their baby could get some sleep. He walked across the yard and killed four of them execution style, including an eight-year-old. Right now, we are the only country in the world with more guns than people. And in 2023, Americans are on a record pace to kill one another over mistakes, arguments, and disputes. What's outside your door? What's knocking there today? And what I hope to show you, among other things, is that there is actually a life-threatening danger outside your door, but it just might not be what you think it is. What we're looking at in this series, if you're new, is something called Lost and Found, and we're looking at the ways in which we get lost and the beautiful and healing ways in which Jesus finds us. And so far, we've seen that people don't just get or don't, aren't just lost from God, but they're also lost from themselves. Saw that last week. And today, we begin a two-part look at another kind of lostness. I'll put it like this. 
People aren't just lost from God and themselves. People are lost from one another. And when we start shooting at people who pull up the, in the wrong driveway, it's just more proof and evidence of that. All the way back at the beginning of our story, of the Bible story, of the Judeo-Christian story, in the first book of what we call the Bible, the book's called Genesis, we find a passage there as shocking as these shootings. Genesis 4 captures the first moments outside paradise, outside the Garden of Eden, once our spiritual ancestors, named Adam and Eve, were expelled for choosing themselves over God and they were banished from the garden and from God. So they're banished. Fellowship with God has been broken. Now God sends them out of the garden to try to make their way into the world. And one chapter later, we now begin to see that lostness from God has spread to lostness from others. Hear the words today of Genesis 4. It says, Adam made love or knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant and she gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now these are the first words spoken by Eve outside Eden. You should know, especially in Hebrew narrative, whenever a person or an individual speaks words for the first time, it's supposed to get your attention. It's communicating something important. What is it? Well, why of all things would Eve say this? If you're familiar, you remember her story, you may recall the last thing that God spoke to her in Genesis 3 was a promise to one day send a savior through her, her offspring, who would save her and, and Adam and the world. Now God put no timeline on the savior's birth, on the baby's birth, but apparently Eve did. And you can see it. When she has her son, she names him what? She names him Cain, which means I've got him. In the Hebrew, it means here he is. Oh, what's she saying? As she holds her son, she's literally saying, here's my savior. Here he is. I've got him. And then she says about this, says he has a second son. Verse two says later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. But you'll notice this time about this son, she says nothing. She praises, affirms, encourages only Cain, but she's silent about Abel. Now, while this passage is not primarily about the outsized expectations parents can put on their children, it's at least worth considering this is a factor in Cain's life, is it not? Do you think it's possible that a parent putting all of their hopes and dreams on their child and then basing their very identity on the performance of that child could potentially twist that child? Yeah. What do you think today? Countless fields, gyms, pools, classrooms are full of the day, if not parents looking at their children and saying, here he is. Here she is, someone whose success will save me. See, in a way, we are shown Eve is already lost from both her sons. But then her lost boys grow up and become men. It says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So the younger grows up to be a shepherd, but the older a farmer. Verse 3, in the course of time, it says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, people ask all the time, you may be asking, well, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? 
Is it like kind of like, well, you know, Abel's, Abel's got sheep. <laughs> Cain's only got salad, you know. <laughs> Abel's got that lamb. Cain's only got that lettuce. You know, it's kind of like, man, if I were God, I'd be grouchy too. Where's the beef, Cain? You know, is this just showing, like one of my undergraduate professors put it, that God is a meat lover, not a vegetarian. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> now here we have our first hint of fraternal discord. This is where the plot thickens because while Abel brings the best portion of the firstborn of his flock, Cain only brings some of the fruits. So Cain offers God less than his best, and when God does not look with favor on what he has done, it says, so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Oh, but look, look now at how merciful God is toward him. God isn't angry with Cain here. No, no, no. It's Cain who's angry with God. Instead of shunning him or staying away from him, no. Instead, God goes to him. Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I mean, God's almost fun functioning here like a, like a good therapist, a good counselor. A good pastor. God doesn't judge Cain. No, he simply asks Cain this series of questions. But then God does say something loving, incredible, and category shattering. Here it is. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What's outside your door, Cain? There is something there threatening you, but I want to tell you, God's saying it's not a person. There is something there. It's something that's making itself look really small like a predator. It's crouching. It's hiding its true size from you. Don't be fooled, Cain. Your true threat, God's saying, your ultimate threat is not a person knocking on your door. It's the sin that's knocking on the door of your heart. And if you get that confused, Cain, it's going to cost you. People aren't your true threat. Sin is. Because while people can hurt you, and they do, sin is worse. It can devour you. Now, at this point, we should pause and acknowledge something that you might be thinking. Morgan, I came to church to feel all the good feels. They were right there in worship. But you have to let them go, man. I didn't come to feel the bad feels. Like, not only is this story depressing, and your sermon too, by the way, but we're talking about the S word. Sin. <laughs> For the record, I want, to, I want to feel all the good feels too. I don't come here to feel the bad feels. I, I mean, who likes bad feels? But isn't it true that only wanting to feel good feels all the time is part of the reason we get in trouble in the first place? Barbara Brown Taylor writer, thinker, in her book called The Lost Language of Salvation, she says, not only is it functionally impossible to get rid of the word sin, she said, if we did, it would be detrimental to our spiritual, emotional, psychological health. She puts it like this. Why should we speak of sin anymore? Abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, I'll come back to that word, deformation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what? 
has been forgiven. Isn't that good? It is good. And she's right. Oh, but again, did you notice the first word she used in that list to describe what sin creates? She uses the word alienation. Another word for feeling lost, not from ourselves, but from others. Sin, in other words, makes us feel like aliens, like foreigners to one another. Because when we feel alienated, we don't know where we are, where we stand with respect to one another. We can't perceive who and what is truly a threat or not. We, we create threats where they're not. We uh, ignore the ones or we miss the ones that truly are. See, what's outside your door, Cain, God's asking? What's the true threat? Is it your sibling or is it your sin? Verse eight, now Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Shocking, huh? But I want to tell you, it, I think it's even more shocking than you might think. And here's why. Only one chapter before Genesis 3, you see Adam and Eve, you see mom and dad banished for what eating appears to be only some naughty fruit. Okay? But immediately, only a few verses later, Eve, chapter 4, now holding the child in her arms, thinking she's holding the world's savior, when in reality, she's holding her other son's killer. Not a redeemer but a murderer. And if you're asking, oh dear God, I mean, how did it get this way? How did sin grow, accelerate so fast? On one hand, if you're asking that, you're asking a good question, but on the other, God's already answered it. He told you, sin shrinks itself. It crouches, it hides its true full size and strength, which shows us what? God saying to Cain and all of us, the real problem with sin is one of underestimation. We underestimate it. We don't take it as seriously as it takes us. I mean, how does sin grow from eating fruit in chapter three to murder in chapter four? Underestimation. Adam and Eve simply underestimated. There's no way they thought back in the garden, hey, if we do this now, if we give in just for a moment, it'll come back and haunt our children in ways we cannot possibly imagine. They didn't think that. They didn't think what feels good now in our generation will result in heartbreak in the next. See, what starts as lostness from God grows, expands into lostness from others. What's outside your door? Best illustration I found of this, maybe my favorite sermon illustration of all time, is from a story, it's a, from a, a cycle, a Christian fairy tale cycle called Tales of the Kingdom by David and Karen Maines. Parents, if you could find them. Encourage you to buy them. One of the stories is about a young girl named Amanda. She's a princess. It's a fairy tale after all. And in the story called Princess Amanda and the Dragon, she lives in a place called Great Park. It's this lone place of safety and refuge from the dark enchanter who rules over Enchanted City. And a man named Caretaker and his wife Mercy steward Great Park and along with some brave rangers care for the place in the hopes that the great king will one day come back and restore their land, and overthrow the enchanter. Every spring, again, because it's a fairy tale, great dragons fly past Great Park and they lay their beautifully colored eggs. But the first rule of Great Park is this. It is forbidden to keep dragon eggs because baby dragons grow up to be big dragons and big dragons bring death. As the story goes on one day, Princess Amanda finds these two beautifully colored bronze eggs outside her door, but she doesn't take the eggs to caretaker 
and mercy. Now she hides him and one morning she finds one of them hatches. She says, I must take you to caretaker, she said aloud. He will know what to do about surprise hatchlings. Now wait a second, she's surprised about an egg? Hatching, yeah, she's already deceived by the size of it. She's deceiving herself. The little beast, it said, turned its brown eye on her and a great tear dropped onto its breast. Amanda began to love the baby dragon. Though she knew it was forbidden, she kept the hatchling for a pet. Just for a little while, she thought, perhaps I can tame it. And isn't this what we, we try to do with sin? We think, I can tame it. It's a small thing. But the dragon continued to grow. Amanda continued to feed it and play with it. But then Amanda soon discovered that her pet hated to be left by itself. The dragonette particularly hated to be left alone at night. And so Amanda began to stay away from the great celebrations. Amanda became angry at the law that kept her from sharing her pet with others. What harm is one small dragon, she thought. The dragon kept on growing. Uh, got big enough to begin to breathe fire and it lit fires in Amanda's home and secret place. But she was careful to put them out. But she began to think ill, think the worst of people who, who loved her the most. They began to ask where she's been. Why are you staying away from our gatherings and celebrations? She thought they were foolish. She thought they don't understand me. She resented it when they asked where she had been. But it said that same night, Amanda realized that the scales of the dragon sleeping beside her were very hard. She knew that its big body was crowding her and that grown dragons were no laughing matter. This was the last night she would allow the dragon to return from its hiding place in the forest to sleep with her in the den. It had become too big and Princess Amanda was afraid somehow she had to get rid of the dragon. But she didn't. And a few mornings later, she woke up to the smell of fire and smoke. The dragon had gone out and set Great Park on fire. Now she's scared for her home, for her life, for her friends. And it says this, suddenly she knew great harm could come from one small, tame dragon. Because small, tame things grow into big, wild beasts. She finds a dragon. She confronts it. She commands it to leave. But it says, when it heard her call, it said it stepped out of the trees into the meadow to face her. Amanda gasped. It had grown even more. And she had not noticed how much the dragon had become cunning. Why had she not seen this? And the dragon attacks her. She's locked in mortal combat with it. And though she ultimately wins the fight, prevails and slays the dragon, many of her friends who fought the fire were burned and killed as a result. See, her choices harmed her and killed the ones she loved. Why has she not seen how large it had become? It's because no matter what size a forbidden thing is, it always appears smaller than it really is. To quote, Jurassic Park sends like that velociraptor. It is a clever girl, clever boy, a clever thing. That's what sin is. That's what it does. That's why the famous theologian John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let's ask now with all this in mind, what does it look like then to be lost from others. What does it look like when dragon eggs hatch and grow and take shape in our lives? Another way of asking the question would be this. What does it mean to be a Cain? Hmm? To be a person lost from others? Well, let's look at him for a second. Let's look Cain full in the face. Is Cain's problem that he's a, some kind of atheist? Hmm? Is he out boozing it up? Getting his grind on in the club? Is he 
debating Christians on campus, trying to talk them out of their faith. No, no, look at Cain. He believes in God. He's got some level of relationship with him. After all, he's literally talking to God here. Hmm? He's worshiping at some level, bringing God some kind of offering. He is not a skeptic. He is a religious, worshiping person, and yet he's still lost from others. What's going on? What are the marks of a Cain? Let me try to give you here from his own words four marks of lostness from others, super fast. First, Cain's see their own work selfishly. They use their work not to benefit humanity, not, to, not for the common good, but to benefit themselves. See, we're Cain's if work is about what makes us us. The name it gives us not, the name we can make for or give to others. Cain's work selfishly. Two, Cain's hoard financially. See, Cain didn't bring his full offering. No, he gave a little, and when God called him on it, he got mad and blamed someone else. We are Cain's. When we refuse to, refuse to plunge our resources into ministry, charity, church, but then we get mad when confronted about it. Third, Cain see people reductionistically. That is, Cain's reduce the threat they are to the world while magnifying the threat that others are. Can you see the irony? Because this is, this is our political landscape, is it not? Yes. You see the irony here. When we only view others as threats and not ourselves, we become a kind of doorstep shooter. And four, Cain's relate begrudgingly. Relate begrudgingly. Through clenched teeth, they say things like, God, I don't want to have to love my brother, my sister. I don't want to have to love those kind of people. The ones not like me, I want to have to love brown people, black people, white people, rich people, poor people, young people, old people, gay people, straight people, whoever, if that's you, you feel that thing right there. I want to tell you, sin is crouching at your door. It longs to master you, but you must rule over it. All right. Well, what then is the reverse? What are the marks of an able? Well, of course, the marks of an able would be just the opposite. An able would be someone who's able to work, to bless, not just to take, who can worship joyfully, serve others gladly, see themselves humbly, and relate to others freely. And ables, oh, can do all of this, and don't you want to live like that? I do. I want to live like an Abel. I don't want to live like a Cain. I want to live like an Abel. I want to be lost from you. Have you lost from me? Have us lost from one another? But can you imagine if this were you, if this were us, can you imagine if we were Abel's, a church full of Abel's who could live this way, who could give selflessly, serve gladly, love freely, walk with humility? How can we do this? Well, is there anyone else in the Bible that Abel reminds you of? Is there anyone else who truly labored selflessly, worshiped the Lord his God with gladness, truly loved freely, walked humbly with his God? Can you see what the Holy Spirit might be doing in this text? I think he's pushing us to ask this question. How can we live like an Abel? How can we stay found with one another? How can we do that? The answer is by seeing how God here deals with Cain's dark heart. When God comes to Cain here, he's revealing himself to the world, who he is, because after all, Genesis is especially about who God is first, not who we are first, and who 
is God. Well, first of all, this is the God we see of mercy. He's a God of mercy because out of the seven sentences God speaks to Cain in this passage, five of them are questions. And even when Cain does sin and kill his brother, God doesn't end his life. He still comes in mercy and pleading. And then the Lord says to Cain, where is your brother? Abel, he's still giving Cain a chance to come clean. Be honest. Could to confess? Hand over the egg. I don't know. He said, am I my brother's keeper? But what else does God come as here? Not just as a God of mercy and pleading, but he also comes as a God of justice and judgment. God says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And for the first time here, God of the Bible reveals himself also as a God of justice. And right away, there might be two reactions to using that word, justice. On one hand is the sort of the culturally conservative viewer reaction, which views the word justice as inherently liberal or secular or woke. But I want to tell you, any conversation about reducing lostness from others necessarily involves that word. Justice is not a secular word. It's not a liberal word. It's a Bible word. The other reaction potentially is the culturally liberal view in which people sort of cringe at the idea of a God as a God of judgment and justice who visits consequences on evildoers. People ask, well, why can't God just love without judgment? Isn't it interesting we don't want God to judge, but we want to do it ourselves? People ask, why all this stuff in the Bible about God's judgment? Well, let me ask you, would you love a God who knew what happened here in Genesis 4 and overlooked Cain's murder? Would that God be loving? No. See, those who do away with God's judgment in an effort to make God more appealing and more loving and more soft and more modern ironically create a bigger problem. They create a world with no real basis for justice, for the oppressed, downtrodden, and even the murdered. See, God's saying, Cain here, I care about your brother's blood. Your brother's blood is talking to me. It's crying out to me. Listen, can you hear? I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something, Cain, about all the brothers who lie dead in the ground. And right away, when you see this and you hear this, you realize two things. Number one, you can't separate justice from love. To be just is to express love. And to be loving and found with one another necessarily involves justice. And to be found with God involves his justice some way, somehow. God brings judgment against evildoers because he is love But number two, you realize, oh, if I want God's justice to fall on them, those people, others, I've got to let it fall on me too. How can we escape? How can we go free? Here's how. Many years later, God made good on his promise to Eve back in the garden. One day, another better, greater Abel came. Another innocent victim came into the world to a group of older brothers who were trying to force God to love them, uh, put God in their debt, who were so filled with anger because the new Abel, the one named Jesus, was telling them that God longed to accept all the younger brothers and sisters, all the nation betrayers, tax collectors, thieves, and immoral. Jesus said, they're getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you, older brothers. And so they, the older brother put Jesus, the truly, only truly innocent human, to death. But then something amazing happened because Jesus died, because he was resurrected. Hebrews 12, written 
generation-ish after the resurrection of Christ, says that because Jesus died and was resurrected, this now has happened to and for all of us who believe him and follow him. Hebrews 12, the writer writes this. Oh, people of God, he's saying, you have come to God, the judge of all, there's the word again, judge, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, why does it speak a better word? Here's why. Both Abel's blood and Jesus' blood cry out for justice and judgment. That's what it means for blood to cry out. But while Abel's blood cried out for judgment to be visited upon Cain, and rightly so, Jesus' blood answers the question, how can God be loving toward us and forgive what we have done, you have done, I have done, while also being just toward us and giving us what our sins deserve. How can God do that? Here's how. It's because Jesus Christ, though he lived like an Abel, he died like a Cain to take our place, to get what we deserve. And now, 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 when we call out to him, when we sin, when our hearts even condemn us, we can know what 1 John 1 tells us, that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and what? Come on, church people, just, faithful and just, not only faithful, not only loving, not only merciful, but just to forgive us at the same time because God's judgment was poured out on Jesus. But that's not the only reason Jesus did what he did. He did spill his blood and die and was raised so that you could, and I, we could go free from our sins before God. But he also did it that we could be found with one another, reconciled to one another, that we could love one another, not hate our brothers and sisters and walk in darkness so that we, not just you, not just a me, so that the we could be found together, so that we could live justly, pour out our continual debt for one another, which is to consider each other's needs above our own. Let me ask you, are you bitter today some way? Angry, jealous, hurt by someone, separated? It's possible, even likely. Or is there some small sin, like a little dragon egg, you've taken home and are given attention to late at night? Would you just... Give that today to Jesus. Relinquish it. Allow him to speak a better word over it. Would you just let him say, trust me with it. Don't withhold it from me. Don't run from it. What if you just let him say, life, not death. Peace, not fear. Hope, not despair. Love, not hate. Forgiveness, not revenge. Foulness and not lostness. What's outside your door? Even more than the sin itself, I want to tell you, it's Jesus. Behold, he says, Revelation 3, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will open it, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. See, Jesus has a better word for you, a word that can turn us canes into Abel's. Hope you can say amen to at least some of this. Let me take a moment and pray for us as we begin to close. Father, we come in Jesus' name, thanking you for this. I think of the beautiful, even divine irony of the song we sang, you're more than able. You're more than able. Even as great as Abel was and innocent, you're truly innocent. You gave your life for us and took our place that we could be found with God and with one another. Would you give us the grace today to say yes to you, to relinquish that thing and be found again 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.